Camarda Wealth offers complimentary, that's free folks, portfolio reviews to listeners. Get us your statements and we will thoroughly examine your portfolio, give you opinions on the risk and quality of each position you own, as well as how wisely we believe the whole thing holds together and how efficiently it addresses your needs and goals. At the same time, we'll also opine on how protected your assets are from financial predators, your estate plan, tax savings opportunities, and other ways we can think that you can cut risk, avoid probate, save money, and just plain get richer faster. Did I mention this service was free? Just call us at 888-CAMARDA, that's C-A-M-A-R-D-A, 888-CAMARDA, to set up your free portfolio review now. You're back with your Camarda Wealth Leaders here on Camarda Wealth Education Radio. During the break, Sonia, to kind of uh, extend the discussion of estate planning, beneficiary designation, and so forth, you had a very astute observation. Would you please share that with our listening audience? Yes. Um, we found in some cases that where you're able to designate a beneficiary, be it on an IRA, on a bank account, whatever it happens to be, that instead of actually having a person named the individual's estate is named as the beneficiary. We see that a lot in insurance, insurance policies too, right. and uh, just okay, just you know, give it to my estate and, and figure it out there. And is that a good idea typically? No, but tell me why, please. Uh, well, I've got my own ideas, but since you brought it up, we'll let you expand on them. <laughs> but one reason is that uh, um, you, you may have a specific purpose for the uh, the funds rather than the general distribution of the estate. And if you don't have a will, uh, then the uh, um, the state rules are going to govern how that money goes down, which may or may not be a wish, particularly for uh, the, the, the property that the beneficiary applies to. Another thing is, say, if it's a life insurance contract, if your estate owes money when you die, that by injecting that capital into the estate, it could be used to satisfy debts instead of going directly to your heirs, which you would probably prefer. What else did you have in mind, Sonia? Well, I mean, even if you do have a will, um, the benefit of having the IRA and being able to name the, de- the or designate the beneficiary is that it bypasses the probate. Um, so now you're just sticking it back into probate by having it go through will versus contract. Which could certainly could add expense, time, and complexity, right? <clears throat> Correct. Rob, you're usually not without opinion on these matters. Any, uh, uh, any concluding thoughts before we get into yet another area of financial planning? Well, I think you want to avoid probate at all costs if you can. There's, if there's, there's really no reason to do it if you've planned your affairs properly. Yeah. Uh, I don't want people to be able to see it because it's available in the public record. You want to be able to distribute your money quickly if possible. Uh, If you have creditors and you have creditors making claims, you've now got to spend time to address those. Um, I I would rather not have to deal with those if I could avoid them. Okay, good. Good follow-up points. So moving through the entire catalog of basic financial planning discipline areas, we've covered investments. We talked about estate planning, talked about income tax planning. Uh, let's now uh, move our eye toward insurance and risk management, you know, and very, very brief overview. But most people need, if you own a car or a home, you need insurance that will replace that property or repair that property if it's damaged, right? So called property damage insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, so if your house burns down, you get the money to rebuild the house, pay off the mortgage, whatever. And these things are usually forced, so you don't really have much choice. 
um, in uh, um, if you own if you owe money against a property, the bank is going to make you have the, the replacement coverage or the repair coverage. What we we typically don't find though is people having enough liability insurance. Would you expand on that a little bit, one of you guys? Well, I mean, let's say you're in an accident and the, the person that's damaged, you know, had uh, significant losses or significant earnings capability. Uh, they're going to look to you for liability that could be in excess of your limits, which now puts the rest of your financial assets at risk. Why put that at risk needlessly if you? And the liability is so cheap, you know. So most yeah. people want to have at least three hundred slash three hundred at a bare minimum. You know, if you got a couple of dollars, you know, if, if your net worth is more than a few hundred thousand dollars, uh, you should could probably consider a liability umbrella um, of at least a million dollars. But you know, for the basics, you three hundred, three hundred, and that that means the first number is how much you will pay per individual, and the second number is how much you will pay per incident. So if you have one hundred, three hundred. And you hit the doctor that makes a million dollars a year. There's only one person. The most he can get is a hundred thousand dollars. If it's three hundred, three hundred, the most we'll pay is three hundred per individual and also per incident. So if you hit two doctors, you're still only going to pay three hundred thousand dollars. I guess they split, get a hundred fifty p something like that. All right. So liability insurance really, really important, often overlooked. And if you don't owe money on a vehicle or a home, it's tempting to not get the insurance because nobody's making you do it. But if that house burns down, you know, typically most of the value is in the structure. It's not in the dirt or the land, unless you're on the water or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that burns down, you're left with, uh, as the, the real estate attorney that closed my very first real estate deal back, deal back in 1982, circa 82, said, you're left with the smoldering remains, which ain't worth much. You know, so uh, you want to make sure that you've got, uh, got the right kind of property insurance. So a lot more interesting to us because it's typically you know more uh, uh, part of, uh, of mainstream financial planning are life and disability insurance. So let's talk about life insurance briefly. Again, this is a quick tour, but most people, in my view, should insure their earning capacity. And that's not whole life, universal life. It's like if you're working another like 10 years and you're going to make $50,000 a year, to make the math very simple, um, that you want 10 times 50 or half a million dollars of insurance in a minimum, right, to replace the income that will be lost to your family if you die. Any, any uh, no, other thoughts? No, no, no qualms there. No, no arguments, Rob? My goodness gracious, no. I'm being too gentle or maybe, maybe not gentle enough. I'm not sure. Well, no, I mean, I... I what makes I, that most people run? Most people tend to be underinsured. Uh, you know, they're usually sold a product that may or may not have been in their best interest, but certainly was probably in the agent's best interest. But we typically see most people don't have enough in life insurance, and we certainly see... And they're, paying, they're spending way too much, really. Now, yeah. getting back to the pay yourself first, which you really shouldn't do with whole life insurance, uh, the, um, is that you know if, if you buy a whole life or cash value type policy, you're paying um, to, to have insurance enforced to age 95 or age 100, typically. And you probably don't need it past. When you stop working, you probably don't need life insurance anymore. But you're paying a very high cost to be able to have a death benefit past the age when most people are alive. It's expensive. Mm-hmm. Now, I met this guy yesterday. He's 92, a retiring doctor, still practicing amazingly. He's got a million dollars of life insurance. And you know what it costs? His premium is $100,000 a year. 100000 a year. And he doesn't need the insurance. So uh, when you say pe- most people are underinsured, they may have a policy that they're paying too much for, but because of the kind of insurance it is, there's not enough death benefit. Is that where you're going, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw somebody the other day who he bought a policy, and 
He really had a need for probably twice as much coverage, and we were able to, you know, basically get him the right amount of coverage for about 40% of what he was paying. You know, so, and so, you know, people need to do a good job of adequately shopping coverage around or make sure that it, you know, there are a number of companies that are competitive out there. Make sure that you work with somebody that isn't beholden to just one company that's going to truly put your interests first, not theirs. Like you, perhaps, Rob. Like you, perhaps. We always and, uh, put the client's interests first. And the same thing is definitely true with disability. If you don't have residual income or, you know, you haven't amassed a very significant asset base. Now, is that true for most folks, or is Social Security disability adequate, you know, for your no. average first, listener? First of all, it's going to take them about a year before they actually be able to get a, a claim f- adequately filed. And of almost 70% of first-time Social Security claimants get disapproved. Uh, but it pays only a small benefit. You need to have your own coverage. So for the average work. listener out there, if you're able to get disability insurance through work, typically is the only place that they're going to get it. They should look at those options in their benefit package, right, or in a cafeteria plan, something like that? Well, you know, you explore what's available from work. But if it's not available through work, you should definitely consider it for yourself. I know I have, you know, as soon as I started working for myself and didn't have a comp- big company making it available, that was the first thing I bought for me to protect my family because if I couldn't work, where was that steady income coming in that my wife was going to need to run the family household? Good point. And I'd like to thank you for uh, making it clear who makes the financial decisions in your household, by the way, <laughs> at least at the consumption level. We know where that all starts. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and more and more, you know, long-term care, you know, is becoming a big issue. Do you have a pool now, Rob? Uh, I've had a, I've had pools and I haven't had pools. So uh, you passed the pool phase. Now. Yeah, you prefer the, in ground? Or? Now, uh, now, now I've you, had both. Now you just bring it home the bacon, right? Yeah. Now I just worry about no getting home at all. <laughs> all right. Uh, but I will tell you, I've been experiencing uh, being a caregiver. And I've been shocked, even looking at the surveys I look at year-end, I mean, what it costs to provide long-term care to somebody. Yeah. Um, let's say, I hate to truncate the insurance segment, but I'd like to move on to retirement planning in the five minutes or so that are left here. And that really comes back. And again, if you missed Dr. Fowl's show last week with us, uh, Dr. Wade Fowl, uh, nationally recognized retirement income specialist, uh, brilliant academic, my professor in the Ph.D. program that I'm in, and also a Princeton Ph.D. Go back and listen to it at Camarda.com or WealthLeader.org. Just, just, just jam-packed with really, really critical information on retirement. But, you know, getting back to our discussion, Rob, you know, does it kind of bring things back to the beginning? Social Security, is that enough for most people to retire comfortably on these days? Not unless they live on a very modest lifestyle. It really is. And we're not even sure if they're going to be able to continue the current levels of uh, Social Security. Most people don't want to live on $1,500 a month or whatever. Uh, it's not very much. Um, so, uh, And unfortunately, most people really haven't saved enough to be able to supplement Social Security. You know, getting back to pay yourself first, some people get to their 50s and 60s and they really haven't put the money away and don't have uh, another pool to supplement Social Security. And usually they're just having to work until they drop because they can't make ends meet. Right. Right? So if you're younger folks out there, make a point to start paying yourself first. If you need some help, give us a call, 800-262-1083, 800-262-1083. Be happy to give you, you know, some tips um, uh, with our compliments. We won't charge you for that just to help you get started. But if you are at retirement age and you haven't really saved enough to supplement, 
there are some things you can do besides part-time work. Now, one thing we talked about last week is the reverse mortgage. If you have equity in your house, um, the government has a, a guaranteed program that makes it pretty easy and pretty cost-effective these days to tap into your home equity and get yourself some money to buy an annuity-type pension or to get regular income or to invest. Any quick comments on that, Rob? No, but it's definitely, you know, if you've got a lot of equity in your house, um, it's something to definitely consider because any money that you take out is generally not going to be taxed. You know, so that's a significant benefit. Um, you know, values are coming back. So the ability to extract value to supplement your retirement portfolio is going to become more more significant. Um, I, I think there's, a, there's definitely some opportunities there. Uh, along with being astute about how to how to deliver income in your in retirement, and what are the approaches that you're going to use? And, you, yeah, you know we talk about there are different social security claiming strategies. A little complicated to go over on the radio right now. Um, but I, th- I think that the important thing is a great point. I'm glad you brought that up in a couple minutes that are left. That depending on how you work out social security claiming strategy, which is a lot more complicated than it looks at first glance, and maybe Sonia can close out the segment with their special knowledge in this area. But it can mean the difference of hundreds of thousands of dollars in benefit in terms of when you take it and how you take it. Sonia, would you care to amplify on that point? Um, Yeah, and I think that's a great tie-in to what we were just talking about with the reverse mortgages um, in that that could be a a bridge income to to allow you to continue to grow your benefit, um, you know, until a later age instead of having to take it at 62 or even just at your full retirement age. Is that typically better to wait a little bit? Or tell us about Social Security claiming strategy. Um, Yes. So if you um, wait until the latest point at 70 to collect your Social Security benefit, um, I believe it that brings it to 132% of your full retirement age benefit. That may not make a big difference during your lifetime, but if, um, you know, if you have a spouse who's expected to live longer than you and that spouse has been reliant on your income, um, then that gives him or her a bigger benefit after your, your death, and I think that that's very important. So typically, what is this file and suspend business that the folks hear about? You know, give us a little bit more information on what that means. Um, so basically what happens is the higher wage earner um, files for their benefit at full retirement age, 65 to 67, depending on your age. Typically um, the most. Pardon? Typically the most. Right. Uh, so, (laughs) (laughs) so you, so you file for your benefit, but immediately suspend getting your benefit, but allowing your spouse to collect 50% of what you're entitled to. Um, again, that allows your benefit to continue growing up until age 70, but give some income to the family, um, from, from the spousal benefit. So what I understand is that, so I'm filing and so say that I'm the older and higher earner. I file, I spend, I don't take my benefit. Mine keeps building, Correct. but my spouse is able to get some income. She wouldn't have other. Great, great advice. Thank you very much. As we wind down, cousin Vito Camardo or somebody, some, some cousin Camardo will be up, uh, with our skin to lady market update. And again, uh, um, that, you know, rather than give you a, another offer, I'd very much like to think, like to hear what you think about the segment. It's, uh, um, the, it's a lot more practical, down-to-earth information. If you take a minute and email me your thoughts on today's format, I really would appreciate it. You can email me at j at camarda.com. That's the letter j at c-a-m-a-r-d-a dot com. Please tell me what you think. Thanks. See you in a bit. Bye. 
Camarda Wealth Leaders' levity is intentional as we aim to be the car talk of financial radio, entertaining, hugely funny, and offering penetrating financial insight and rare expertise across a broad spectrum of wealth-related topics. We're dead serious about money, but want you to have fun, too, and laugh all the way to the bank. Unlike many financial radio shows, this is not one long commercial or constant annuity pitch. I hate those constant annuity pitches. This is Wealth Education Radio, and we aim to share best financial practices that can truly supercharge your wealth. Do we expect some of you will want to become clients? Sure, but because the chemistry is right, and because you come to believe that the wealth leaders, that's us, can get it done better than your other choices. That's your decision. But when it comes to investing, we're fiduciaries. We put our clients' interests first, and that's a promise you can take to the bank. For more information and free reports, call us now at 888-CAMARDA. That's 888-C-A-M-A-R-D-A. Do it now while it's on your mind, folks. Folks, you are back with the final segment of the Commodore Wealth Leaders right here on Commodore Wealth Education Radio. And now it's the uh, cousin uh, Vito Camarda segment on economic numbers getting hotter, leading the Fed to a hint of a quicker rate trigger finger. Vito, are you in the house? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, Vito is taking a shower. So I'm going to hand it over to uh, Arnold right now. Okay, Cousin Arnold. You were just actually you just in the journal this morning. I enjoyed looking at your picture more in the paper. But uh, absolutely, uh, Cousin Arnold. The economy appears to be getting (laughs) some momentum. What are the numbers showing? Oh, Cousin Arnold. Well, I mean, uh, you know, just like me in the gym back in the late seventies, the the economic picture, easy for me to say, is uh, looking real strong, or at least relative to the puny numbers that we've had so long. I mean, you look at the Eurozone debt issues. Of course, it continues to be the proverbial elephant in the room. But, you know, it's almost getting to the point, who cares at this point? I mean, we look at the domestic data. Um, you know, the Fed uh, is showing real signs of uh, raising rates here. You look at the second quarter trumping the first quarter's weakness, uh, looking better. You had, obviously, consumer spending up 0.9% last month. That would be May, uh, topping 0.8% expectations and also topping April's 0.1% increase. Now you're looking at the jobless claims at 15-year lows. So, again, it's illustrating your companies uh, here in the the U.S. of A. are are certainly not even close to layoff mode. And this is a good sign for the economy But uh, as we head into the summer vacation. But there is, obviously, the other side of the coin, the other shoe, if you will, that could drop with rate increases. In fact, uh, uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed governor, recently said that not only one, but perhaps two uh, rate increases this year could be out there. And generally, these, these, these comments by the governors are not just out of left field, so we'll have to watch that closely. Now, as we move into the markets, uh, you know, we continue to see weakness in transports. I mean, if these guys were benching, it would be about 50 pounds, uh, you know, using, <laughs> hey, using I those... Hey, wa- I just got up to 50 pounds. Using those, those water dumbbells for crying out loud. <laughs> in the and, water. And then you've got utilities and, and, and bonds right now, and I think Dr. Fowl kind of intimated with interest rates earlier. But the bottom line is all these interest-sensitive asset classes certainly are going to uh, continue to see weakness as rates rise. And just the projection of rate rise is causing those ripples now. Now, talking about more of my type of asset classes, you know, strong, uh, small caps, mid caps, they continue to move the market higher and outperforming large caps. Again, with a strong dollar, 
We've talked about this infinitum, so we won't go uh, too much and labor it here. But as we zoom in on the one-sided utility sector, you can see a divergence with the S&P 500 and the 10-year Treasury note. Now, of course, with the 10-year Treasury note rising nicely recently, that's going to hit interest-sensitive uh, you know, type of asset classes like utilities, bonds, and the such, while banks and insurance companies do well, as we've talked about. And you look at the regional banks uh, you know, on top of that. They've been doing really well, and a lot of that is due to you know, the projection of raising interest rates and the loan spread that they actually capitalize on. Now, uh, anyone else out there? I think Vito's, well, about, I think Vito's got one slipper out of the room. Well, before, before the question, I just want to thank you for that brief and simple explanation of what's happening in the markets, guys. And all. Absolutely. Sorry, My head is spinning. Yes, but I think that explanation is um, beginning again. Are the smaller and mid-caps... Come closer to the microphone with those dear lips. Oy. Um, <laughs> are the smaller and mid-sized firms still outdueling the blue chips? Yeah, well, uh, oh, I'm sorry. It's Peppy. Here's, here's Cousin Vito. Uh, get, out of, get out of the way. I appreciate it. Don't let him on the air again. Anyway, Sandy, here we go. Peppy, go get me some coffee, please. As we, uh, as we begin, as we talked about small and mid-cap performance so far, you know, Dane, one of the reasons, as we've intimated, is, most, you know, looking at S&P 500 companies uh, getting about 40% of their revenues overseas, so that's certainly causing a drag. And, you know, Jeff has talked about the overvaluation of large-cap domestics and so many opportunities in foreign companies, but that also applies to smaller and mid-cap type companies here as well because, again, they don't get as much of their revenues overseas. So it's looking pretty good right now if you've definitely done some tactical asset allocation. And speaking of uh, foreign, Rob, you look like you have a little curiosity. Uh, it uh, seems that uh, Europe and certainly the Speak United up. Come close to the microphone. Move. Certainly Make believe that's a carrot. Don't come talk on. like a little boy. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm so sorry. Face. Go yeah. ahead. <laughs> it seems Europe and certainly uh, emerging market space I've lost a little on the fastball of late. That's one of your uh, yeah. terms. Well, what do you see there? I thought I had cotton in my mouth. Uh, anyway, here we go. As we you look at the global picture. seconds Trump, left, fellas. Absolutely. We're going to make it a quickie. The EFI index, that's the Euro-Austrianic Far East Index. And you can see it slowed down, though, recently, along with emerging markets, as the dollar's kind of gone in the storm mode. And, uh, you know, a little consternation there uh, that we've seen a slowdown overseas because, again, that could cause a drag on domestic equities. We're going to have to watch that a little closer as we may be going into a little bit of a dip as we move into the summer, but we're going to have to watch closer. And the only other thing I wanted to say in the final few seconds before you guys always cut me off is that uh, you look at holding up the rear of the market, again, is gold. And uh, we've talked about that. Oil, banks. And the, uh, and the biotechs have certainly had a nice second quarter. Thank that's you so much. Great job. Thank you, Vito. Uh, and that's it for this week, folks. Next week, well, you know, we talk about a lot of esoteric matters on the show, but next week we'll be talking about simple, plain vanilla financial planning that virtually anybody can use. Come back for your Commodore Wealth Leaders next week. Thanks, folks. Bye-bye. You've invested yet another hour in Camarda's Wealth Education Radio, your one source for sublime insight on all things financial. As Ben Franklin said, pour the coins from your purse into your mind, and your mind will fill your purse with gold. Remember the Camarda Wealth Leader's warm offer of a complimentary review of your investments portfolio. That's a free analysis from the financial team with almost more letters than in the entire alphabet, an offer that makes old Ben smile even now. To get yours before we change our minds, call 888-CAMARDA. That's 888-C-A-M-A-R-D-A. Call now before we run out. That's it for this week, folks. Go forth and profit.
The opinions expressed in the preceding program are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers, and may not reflect the opinions of the advertisers or broadcaster. Performance results are presented net of fees and reflect the reinvestment of dividends and capital gains. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Therefore, no current or prospective client should assume that future performance of any specific investment or strategy will be profitable or equal to past performance levels. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. Changes in investment strategies, contributions, withdrawals, and or economic conditions may materially alter the performance of your portfolio. Different types of investment involve varying degrees of risk. There can be no assurance any specific investment strategy will be suitable or profitable for any client's investment portfolio. Historical results for investment indexes or categories generally do not reflect the of transaction fees or custodial charges or an investment manager's fees, the presence of which could reduce the client's actual performance results. There are no assurances that a portfolio will match or outperform a particular benchmark. Asset allocation and diversification do not assure or guarantee better performance and cannot eliminate the risk of investment losses. Back testing involves a hypothetical reconstruction based on past market data of which the performance of a particular account would have been if the advisor had been managing an account using a particular investment strategy. Performance results presented do not represent actual trading using client assets, but were achieved through the retroactive application of a model that was designed with the benefit of hindsight. Back tested performance results have inherent limitations, particularly that these results do not represent actual trading and do not reflect the impact of material market or economic conditions or factors that may influence the advisor's decision-making if the advisor were actually managing the client's money. Back-tested results should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill, as they do not reflect the results achieved by any particular client of the advisor. Barron's rankings are survey-based and not made as a result of primary research by Barron's, but from information provided by ranked advisors. It should not be assumed that all advisor-based data is checked by Barron's.